Hello and welcome to Homebrew from Time for Cakes and Ale with me, Bex. And me, Eason. And this time we're joined by podcaster Carl Sweeney, host of the Movie Palace pod and frequent host of the X-Cast. Hi, Carl. Hi, guys. Thanks very much for the invite. It's a pleasure to be with you today. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Yeah, thank you. Really looking forward to this. So to kick things off, how are you getting on during the lockdown? Personally, I'm getting on okay, which I think is, is you know, I think that's a decent achievement at this point. Um, it's very strange. It really is. Like, I'm working from home. I haven't been anywhere significant since the 11th of March. Uh, I think even at that point, I was kind of reluctant <laughs> to go anywhere. That was the last time I went to work. Um, but things are okay. You know, I think fairly fortunate. We've got a reasonably sized house. We've got a back garden to go out in and... You know, we've got enough stuff in the house to keep us entertained and so on. We've been able to get food, no issue. So we've been pretty lucky, I'd say. So I, I'm doing reasonably well under the circumstances, I would say. So to kick things off, we wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, your work on the X-Cast, because we noticed on Twitter uh, a few weeks back now, probably around the time the lockdown started, yeah. that you had started the X-Cast quarantine. So <laughs> yeah. could you tell us a little bit about how that worked? Sure. So the X-Cast, um, yeah, it's a podcast all about the classic sci-fi cult series, The X-Files, um, which is no longer on the air, of course, but from the 90s, the, the you know, one of the big cult shows of the 90s. Um, I've been involved with that podcast for a few years now. I wasn't there when that podcast started, um, but I, I hopped aboard fairly quickly. And that's a podcast that's approaching almost 500 episodes at this point. Um, so that's the basics. And then the, the X-Cast quarantine yeah, when I was locked down, I thought, right, I need some nostalgia, basically. And um, I decided to do a rewatch, um, The X-Files on Blu-ray. One episode a day seemed like a, a reasonable, you know, speed to go at for me. And then after a couple of days, I was talking to some other fans and they expressed an interest in sort of watching along as well. And then I thought, well, maybe this could be a broader thing. You know, maybe this could be something I post every day and whoever wants to join in can do so. So yeah, on Twitter and on Facebook every day, I I post about this. We're just going through it one at a time, completely in sequence, no skipping. Um, and yeah, it's been going for a few weeks now because we're getting to the end of season one. And it's as simple as that. So people can watch when they want. There's no kind of communal watch along time. People can just comment on the episodes if they want to. They don't necessarily have to watch, but sometimes people like to get involved in the conversation. Some people dip in and out. Some people I know have been watching kind of, they get to the end of the week, haven't watched anything and do a bit of a marathon to kind of catch up. So it's just that, basically. It's, it keeps me distracted, if nothing else. I think that that's why it started. <laughs> if it can distract some other people too, then then great, you know? Does it feel different doing these rewatches in a group dynamic um, rather than just, you know, when you feel like rewatching a show and you just sit down and watch it by yourself? It does. Um, and that's interesting with The X-Files because I think when that series was revived, it, when it aired some new episodes in 2016, I think Fox had organised like a global rewatch, the 201, 201 days of the X Files, uh, which was you know properly properly organised and centrally directed. And I kind of missed out on that. I kind of was late to that party. Um, so it does change the group dynamics. You realise which episode. It's very interesting every day to see which episodes people react to. You know, some tweets get far fewer likes than others, and you sort of see how uh, kind of the fan base thinks about these things. So, yeah, it does. It'll be interesting to see how that goes on because I think, um, and you, you guys are 
fans of the X-Files. Am I right? You've, you've yeah, seen the whole series. Yeah. yeah, it'll be interesting when we get to like seasons eight and nine and <laughs> beyond when people kind of tail off. You know, I think that <laughs> it'll become evident then, I think. You said that you're not skipping any episodes. Is is that difficult if you were if you were rewatching something by yourself? Are, are there ones that you would tend to skip? I know there's a couple of shows that I tend to rewatch every few years that are, yeah. that are you know six seven seasons long. And the the more times I rewatch them, the more ruthless I get about. Oh god, I can't be asked for that episode again. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I think the last time I did a rewatch, it was very much like that. There were lots of episodes. I thought I'll just do the good stuff, you know, and I was quite brutal. So like the first season, I probably only watched last time around, probably only watched seven or eight episodes, to be frank. Um, so there's actually a bit of novelty this time in that some of these episodes, it's been quite some time since I've seen them. So I'm at the minute, I'm not finding that difficult, but I know exactly what you mean. I think the X-Files is a series like some of my other, you know, favorite series from yesteryear, things like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, or I'm watching the original Star Trek at the minute. And lots of those kind of series, you could quite easily just do a curated rewatch, couldn't you? And I don't think you'd miss out too much. You definitely wouldn't do that with some of these more modern series. Like I can't imagine people doing that with something like Breaking Bad, for instance. Um, but I like that kind of malle- malleableness with something like the X-Files, where you can kind of go all in, or if you don't want to, you, you don't necessarily have to. You know, I think that's kind of, kind of nice. So the X-Files was one of the the first sort of cult shows of the, of the 90s that set that format of having a mixture of, you know, the Monster of the Week standalone episodes and also this this increasingly convoluted mythology <laughs> yeah. that had uh, built up. That probably I think isn't as convoluted as it as it seems in retrospect, but at the time that was always a thing. It was too hard to follow. No one had a clue. Um so we're big fans of it and we've seen the show several times. But if you're starting out, what what do you think would be um, some shows that might be a good lead-in for people who are maybe new to the show, who are thinking of uh, picking the show up to uh, not only rewatch but maybe join in your quarantine. Yeah, I was thinking about this, and it's a tough question because the temptation is to go for like a few of the best episodes of the series, but then I'm not sure if that's always the best way to start. I think sometimes you need a good grounding with a particular series before you get to the really good stuff. Um, so yeah, I thought of a few episodes that I think would make good kind of jumping in points, and I've decided to go with five very early episodes and then just that if people actually do go and take these recommendations just know that there's a lot of stuff kind of the other side of these episodes for you to go out and discover thereafter I suppose but I think you could do a lot worse with the X-Files than starting with the actual actual pilot episode um, which introduces you know the main characters Agents Mulder and Scully which uh, who are played by David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson it kind of nails down the basic dynamic from the get-go. So basically that Mulder is the believer. He believes in all manner of paranormal phenomena. Um, and he's contrasted with Scully, who's this um, doctor with, a you know, this, uh, this young FBI agent with a medical background brought in to kind of provide this scientific analysis to the cases that they work on. So I think the pilot episode, they go off to um, this small town in Oregon where there have been these unsolved murders. Um, it's like a, a several high school classmates from the same year um, turning up dead. And I think Mulder believes there's some alien abduction stuff going on. And Scully, of course, uh, doesn't. But basically, the pilot nails down a lot of the mood and the tone of the series from, from the get-go. It nails down a lot of the kind of repartee between the two of them. Um, 
I would say the series kind of emerges maybe 70% formed, if that makes sense. I think like as as you go through the first and second season, it kind of it, it develops that. But the pilot is a good starting point. Um, I don't know if you guys particularly remember the pilot or have any thoughts on that. Or... So the pilot was something that I only came to, I think, after watching uh, most of the first series. I, I remember joining it at Deep Throat and... I remember when they there was a release of the original VHSs where I think they only ran like maybe the first series where they had two episodes per tape. And I remember, I'm not sure when that came out, but it must have been sort of just after the first series had aired in the UK. And that's when I first saw the pilot episode. But I think I didn't have the experience of watching it as the first one. I think I kind of reflected on it in light of, uh, you know, having watched the first series and being quite into it at that point as well. But as pilot episodes go... I think, like you say, it really does set up a lot of the the tone, the kind of themes that are going to be covered. And I think if you like that, it's certainly a good way to understand how, you know, how the show is going to work thematically in terms of, you know, moments where you've got this great dynamic between the leads. You've got this alien conspiracy thing going on. I think interestingly, it's, all, it's also got a few moments of levity in it as well between the early dynamics between Mulder and Scully, which kind of comes up a lot more in the series as they do sort of the more comedic episodes. But there's a lot in it, I think, which does, like you say, set the template for the series. Yeah, yeah and it's interesting that, you know, I think uh, Duchovny is kind of known for his kind of deadpan acting, but his performance in the pilot is actually quite broad and providing some of that levity that you mentioned. Um, so I agree. And just to move on, another one I'd recommend, I mean, you mentioned uh, this kind of dichotomy in the series between the more sort of standalone storytelling and this big convoluted uh, ongoing story about the alien uh, conspiracy. So I think another episode I'd recommend is the third episode of the series is called Squeeze, which is probably the first um, proper standalone story, really. The first couple of episodes involve aliens, and then you get to episode three, which is about... Um, it's about this this killer who's going on this murder spree, which kind of seems to reoccur every 30 years, uh, where the victim's liver is taken out. And the suspect they, they identify is a guy called Eugene Victor Toombs, played by Doug Hutchison. And but I don't want to say too much, but Mulder comes to the theory that this is the same man who killed these people 30 years ago, and indeed 60 years ago. Even though he must be 100 years old, he doesn't look it. He looks, you know, about 30 so yeah, this is a very good early example of the elasticity of the show's premise, I think. But again, they would develop this as they went along. But this was a show that could do like hardcore sci-fi. It could do a thriller story. It could, you know, at times it could be a big action piece. As the years wore on, they would, you know, they would do comedies of, um, you know, varying uh, caliber. <laughs> um, you know, it could do anything, basically. And and the series was very good at kind of accommodating uh, these different kind of tones and not getting too far way laid so squeeze again it's quite a crude early example in some respects um you know the look of the series the aesthetic of it is not perhaps as fully fully formed as it would become at this point but it's a very very engaging example of an early standalone story and it's got one of the most iconic um i guess you'd call him a monster one of the most iconic monsters that the series would put forward as well so yeah season one episode three squeeze is a good one when people are looking at going back and watching older shows um, that are either completed, as The X-Files probably now is, we think. Yeah. Um, 
or or things that are maybe still running but have been going for a really long time, it can sometimes feel very daunting when you look and see that there's you know two hundred plus episodes at forty fifty minutes per episode, and people think, do I want to invest the amount of time and energy that's going to take to get into this because it's for that investment to pay off I've got to really believe this is going to be a good show but also it's going to take a lot of time in the coming weeks months years but now that we all seem to have an awful lot of time in the coming weeks months hopefully not years is this a particularly good time to start shows which maybe like the X-Files have a, a tremendous number of episodes to get through um which in in other times might seem like too much of a a daunting prospect to begin i suppose if there is one upside to the current situation and maybe that's it yeah uh, i think it is a fairly good time for that i think it's also a good time for kind of the opposite though like a good time to kind of um well not the opposite but for me it's returning to a series i've seen over and over again i think it's a good time to kind of uh to do that and yeah, for people who haven't seen the series before, I think it's I think it's an apt time. Um, I mean, there are some episodes that are particularly timely when you view them in 2020. Like I was the one, the next one I was going to mention is an episode called Ice. Again, it's a fairly early first season instalment, but um, this is an episode where Mulder and Scully get called in to this uh, remote Alaskan outpost where a group of scientists have turned up dead. And this is just an episode that's drenched in like paranoia and. It's all about isolation and escalating tension. Um, so you can sort of see why it speaks to the present moment. And there are various episodes of the series that, that do that in one way or another. Like we, we're doing this thing on the X-Cast in a minute where we go through the X-Files feature film. And there's all sorts of stuff in there about this plan for a global pandemic and stuff. So some people might want to, you know, <laughs> that might not be what some people want to experience at this point in time, perhaps. <laughs> uh, but it's it's really interesting. But that episode Ice, again, it's a crucial one because it's um it's, it's a staging post in a, in a kind of way for the Mulder and Scully partnership. It's kind of a nice crucible through which that relationship is tested. Um, I think it's episode eight of the series. So it's just it just shows how their partnership develops. And I think... Yeah, I wouldn't recommend necessarily that people sit down and watch the X-Files from episode one to episode 218 on the first viewing. And I think if you do a bit of a curated rewatch, episodes like the ones I'm speaking about, perhaps, maybe some others, I think it's always fun to go back to stuff once you're invested, uh, if that makes sense. And uh, I'm not sure the best, I'm not sure most people would enjoy kind of going through episode one in a linear you know from episode one in a linear fashion i think there's some stuff in that uh, in an early run that would put people off so to go back to your original question it's a good time to do rewatches like this but there are ways to do it and i would encourage people to think about what kind of time investment they want to make i suppose so what was the uh the fourth episode in your list of of classics that that people might jump into the series at? okay so just moving a, a bit further on Again, we're still only at the midpoint of the the first season. I've chosen four from the first season and one from the second season. But there's an episode called Beyond the Sea, which involves a, a death row inmate called Luther Lee Boggs, played by the great uh, Brad Dourif, who he claims to be psychic and to have kind of an insight into these killings that are going on outside. Um, and he kind of wants to, you know, to try... He's, he's about to be executed and he wants a lesser sentence. So... What this episode does is kind of flip the usual narrative pattern around. So normally we'd expect an episode like this to involve Mulder really believing what the guy has to say, Scully being much more unwilling to go along with it. Now this episode flips that around because Scully's kind of, um, her father dies at the outset of the episode and she sees kind of a ghostly vision of him just before 
Uh, her mother calls with the news that her dad has died. And then this guy, Boggs, kind of seems to know about this when they go to see him in the prison. So what this episode demonstrates is that these these are characters who may have depths we wouldn't necessarily assume from some of the more formulaic installments early on. Um, it's one of the first like, really vivid examples of just how good Gillian Anderson is and, and was and is, you know, continues to be in the various roles because uh, she gives kind of a reviewer performance. Um, and it's interesting. So like that previous episode I mentioned, Ice, is a very, it's it's well known as kind of a riff on the John Carpenter film, The Thing. Um, but like I said, it's a great character piece. Now, this episode, Beyond the Sea, is also heavily influenced by a film. In this case, it's The Science of the Lambs. But you can see even here that this is much more so its own, in my opinion, it's much more so its own thing than the earlier episode. It's about this point in the series where the X-Files' unique, distinct identity seems to come much more into focus for me. Um, so I've, I think this is one of the best episodes in the entire series, even though it comes so early on. But yeah, Beyond the Sea, I think it's season one, episode 13, if I'm not mistaken. And I think speaking to the quality of episodes like that, one thing that has always struck me, at, you know, I know you mentioned um, uh, Breaking Bad in passing earlier, is both the X-Files and Buffy, uh, you know, running in that period from sort of the the early '90s through to, I think I think the early 2000s at least in their initial run yep. um, uh, for the X Files, the number of people from a creative side who those shows spawned, uh, who've gone on to create other landmark TV shows, directors who popped up, they were kind of jobbing directors maybe when they were doing the X Files, but then they went on to huge careers afterwards. It's also quite fun when you go back and rewatch the series and see how many. Uh, guest stars it had because obviously Brad Dourif was big at the time but the number of people who you can who you can see appearing in the X-Files can be quite odd when you watch it and realize that you know 25 odd years ago these people were popping up as as little more than <laughs> yeah. know, small cameos and things like that yeah it's true because especially when you get to kind of the third season onwards you start to see people like Jack Black and Giovanni yeah. Ribisi and Lucy Liu yeah. I think there's one episode where Octavia Spencer is just kind of basically a glorified extra, you know. And yeah, it's really true with the on-screen talent. And yeah, with the X-Files, some of the people who kind of wrote the series and, yeah, you're talking about people like, well, Vince Gilligan, I think, is the classic example with Breaking Bad. But um, people like Glenn Morgan and James Wong have done their own things. You know, the Final Destination film series, I think, is maybe what they're best known for. Mm. Um Somebody like Frank, Frank Spotnitz, who was the executive producer on the series. I'm not sure he's ever quite rivaled his X-Files success, but he's been the showrunner on various series, things like Man in the High Castle. And yeah, it was an interesting series because like you say, it became this kind of proving ground for a lot of talent. And I think a lot of that, the credit has to go to the series creator, Chris Carter, I think, who doesn't always get a lot of credit in kind of fan circles but he had kind of an interesting approach where i think he would encourage writers on the series to have their own kind of distinct voice i think he did a lot of rewriting but i think up to a certain point he was happy for people to sort of go off and do their own thing you know so it's really true but i think a lot of the people who worked on the series arguably were never quite as strong elsewhere i mean some of them were but i think some people did their very best work for carter on the x-files you know some of them actually started to move outside of the uh, the genre TV uh, realm and move more into mainstream uh, sort of primetime US dramas and things like that. But a lot of them, I think, almost learned their trade a little bit on, you know, on a show like that. Because, um, again, these shows weren't, well, 
Buffy especially, I mean, it was on a smaller network. It wasn't like a Fox TV show and things like that. Um, but but clearly, people, if they could survive the gauntlet of of uh, of writing and show running things like that, that became quite popular. I think a lot of them did go on to uh, to show that you could take that sensibility of of really trying to make good quality television and turn it into a serialized thing that that had long running storylines. So so they weren't sort of twenty four episodes where each one was distinct. I mean, the idea of bringing in serialized storytelling was was something that was probably more in in Buffy than it was in the X-Files simply because, you know, it really wasn't a distinct, this is what, you know, this is one about aliens. This is one about, you know, something else. Whereas Buffy had, had certainly as it went on sort of long season, long arcs. And now that's kind of the standard for a lot of these major TV shows that, that obviously don't last 24 episodes a season, but serialized storytelling is now a thing. I think it's largely because of, of the people who, um, who put those shows together. Yeah, I suppose in terms of genre shows, I guess if you went back further, I guess one of the key American shows that sort of really did that, something like Hill Street Blues, I think, yeah. which had these kind of overarching and overlapping stories. And then with the X-Files, I suppose to go back to that pilot episode I mentioned, you can sort of see in the pilot the distinct influence of like Twin Peaks uh, on the X-Files. You know, it's a series that starts with this, this young uh, schoolgirl turning up dead. Mulder has this kind of weird oral fixation where he's playing with sunflower seeds all the time, which always seemed to me kind of reminiscent of Cooper talking into his dictaphone as he drives into the town. And there are just various things in the first couple of episodes that kind of remind me of Twin Peaks that then disappear. And yeah, I think the serialized... I mean, that's what's so great about the X-Files, though, is that I think you can just put on episodes without having to be burdened down by all this knowledge, necessarily. And that's not to disparage serialized storytelling, because I think that sort of high-end storytelling and television series that followed the X-Files, um, even things that kind of overlapped a bit chronologically to some extent, like The Sopranos. Like, I would never disparage that kind of the series, but there's something to be said about the kind of standalone, isolated pleasures you can get from um, non-serialized stuff too. Um, I'd just like to mention one more episode, if I may, just to um, demonstrate that I'm not just going to talk about season one the whole time. Um, <laughs> there's an episode of season two I wanted to flag up, which is called Humbug which is, uh, I'm not sure if you guys remember this one necessarily, yeah? Um, this is an episode where Mulder and Scully travel to a town in Florida, which is populated predominantly by circus performers, because uh, a guy has died, the alligator man um, has died. That was his performing name. Um, so they're searching for a killer in this kind of uh, idiosyncratic town. And this is an episode I've chosen just because it demonstrates that suppleness of the show's tone. And like I said, it would become much more a prominent part of the series from after this point um, that it would do that would sort of delve into comedy. But it kind of demonstrates that this is a series of like an almost indestructible kind of edifice. Uh, sort of, this is a series, that, uh, an episode that pokes fun at the main characters. It kind of deconstructs what they normally do in some ways. It does things that you'd think might destroy the format or that might mark kind of, okay, when a show gets to this stage, maybe it's kind of, you know, it's time's running out or something. But the great thing with the X-Files is it would always kind of snap back into place before you know it. Um, and as, as it would go on, it would just get more experimental, more kind of risk, and more, more kind of daring, take more risks. But it kind of starts with that episode, Humbug. So I think if you take those five episodes, Pilot, Squeeze, Ice, Beyond the Sea, and Humbug, I think taken together, you get a nice introduction to the series, what it can do, what it can do very well. Um, and like I say, there are probably an, at least another... I don't know, well over 100 episodes after that that are well worth tracking down as well. But 
I think that's a decent-ish sort of primer, if that makes sense. Yeah, I I distinctly remember when Humbug was first broadcast in the UK, because the next school day, everybody was talking about it. And I, and I remember it about that episode more than any other from those early years at school. Did you see the X-Files? Did you see the X-Files? Did you see that episode? Wasn't it crazy? Um, yeah, it's... it's uh, that that episode more than any other seemed to I mean people didn't really call them water call the moment at the time and we certainly didn't even have water callers at school but you know what I mean <laughs> yeah. it was that it was that kind of moment for the show yeah well that's the thing really is that yeah sort of from that point onwards for the next couple of years the x-files was like this massive pop cultural phenomenon really where it kind of moved well well beyond its kind of cult appeal that it had from very early on it was on the cover of magazines. It was, you know, the Dukovny and Anderson were on chat shows all the time. Ultimately, they commissioned a, uh, a film, which they made They made between the fourth and fifth seasons and aired between the fifth and sixth, you know. Um, all sorts of merchandising tie-ins, computer games and whatnot. Um, I, I suppose no show can kind of maintain that forever. And, uh, and it, it goes on for a long time after its kind of heyday had kind of passed, I think. Um, but yeah, it, it, there was a time when it was really in touch with the zeitgeist and sort of had these kind of, had this topicality as well. A lot of the storylines were kind of ripped from the headlines and just it had this two or three year period where everything was kind of synced up, you know, and uh, I think that happens from time to time. I don't think any one show can maintain that forever, but, um, for those of us who remember it, it was kind of a very special time, I think, as a, as a fan. Yeah. And now I think it's a, it's a great time to go back and, uh, and revisit it if you've seen it before or actually potentially start rewatching it as a lot of people are you know looking for the next thing to to maybe binge watch you know unaware of how long the current the current period is going to last yeah definitely i think the xcast quarantine i'm not sure somebody projected it would take until october and um somebody said to me are you sure you don't want to do just like a themed rewatch or something you know like all the virus episodes yeah. and i was i, I was <laughs> said look no i'm settled in for the long haul basically i think that um this could take a long time i mean don't get me wrong nothing would please me more than not having to watch season nine again but we'll see how it goes um uh yeah and i think just one thing we should mention for for those who aren't familiar with the series is that yeah so it's nine original seasons two feature films and then it was resurrected in 2016 and 2018 to mixed to a mixed response i think there's some good stuff in well particularly season 11 the most recent one um but i think that the heyday of the series is really that first five seasons when um, it was filmed in Vancouver. It was kind of, like I say, it kind of chimes with the times. Um, it's just this magical thing where um, everything seemed to line up. And more often than not, I think the great thing with the X-Files is to go back to some of the stuff we've been talking about. The great thing about the X-Files is, you, is that you're very rarely more than, I'd say, three or four episodes away from like a, a Stone Cold classic you know, I think that it has these kind of rough spells, but you can watch, you know, an episode or two that just is particularly dodgy. Um, but there's it's like something like Star Trek, the original series, I think, where you have these kind of weird kind of this pinballing thing where just the quality from one week to the next is just no indicator of what the next episode is going to be like, I think. Um, I suppose the other thing to mention is that I'm, I'd be very curious to see how somebody thought about this series in 2020 watching it for the first time Uh, because i think people have very different approaches to kind of dated material don't they um so i think particularly some of those early x-files episodes they feel like you know from a 
a bygone era of television. It does get it does get much more contemporary in feeling as it goes on. I think um, even that I'm not sure if that's the right term. But I sort of think of anything from '95 onwards as contemporary, just in all aspects of life. <laughs> to be honest, that's kind of <laughs> where I'm stuck. Um, but I don't know what you guys think. I think that could be an issue. That can be a barrier for some people, can't it? In some in terms of getting invested in stuff. I think it depends. Yeah, I, I think there are there are certainly a couple of episodes that I can think of from that first season where the visual effects are yeah. a little bit dodgy. <laughs> but then it it's exactly the same thing for something like Buffy. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember trying to get some some colleagues at work in, into Buffy, and one of them couldn't cope with the the visual effects at all. He's just no, I can't watch this. I can't watch this. So it's it's the it's the kind of thing that's either going to trouble you or not. But I think there is a the, the fact that those early seasons were filmed in Vancouver and now half the shows that we seem to watch, half the genre shows are all filmed in Vancouver. There's something about the aesthetics of it and a lot of the shooting locations and, and a lot of the supporting cast who ha- have incredibly familiar faces because they turn up in in you know half the shows that seem to come out of the North America these days. That that mean that it maybe hasn't dated as much as it could have done, because it, it was almost a kind of early front runner of, I guess Vancouver as a as a place where a tremendous amount of television gets made. Um, but but also for me, there's there's something about those early X Files episodes that encapsulate a sort of '90s Gen X gloominess. Yeah. Um. You know. A a, a certain. Uh, weariness and a, a, a weary curiosity with the world and with trust in everything that, uh, that that for me means that the X-Files will forever be one of the shows that represents that whole generation I think. Yeah it's very much tied to the sort of Clinton era I think in that respect which is interesting because the show actually continues into the kind of Bush administration and then is resurrected at the tail end of the Obama era and into the Trump era with season 11. And it seems like the sort of show's politics come to the foreground a bit more in the most recent season. But I think when it was most effective was when it was speaking to that mood that you were just describing, uh, I think. And just on the datedness, I think the good thing with the X-Files, I think this is maybe where it has a bit of an edge on something like Buffy, perhaps. And, and you can tell me if you think I'm wrong, but I think because the X-Files has been preserved very well on Blu-ray, you know, and I think I think you're right. Some of the effects from those early episodes are quite quite dodgy, well, not dod- dodgy, but very of their time. And very, you know, it was a, a show that started with a limited budget. But by and large, the series looks great on Blu-ray. And I think whenever I try to do a Buffy rewatch, I seem to remember the the fandom sort of seemed to be a bit more split with Buffy on some of the kind of remastering that had been done and stuff like that. I don't know if that if that is yeah. right. The the remastered Buffy that you can get has lots of problems with it the mm. the coloring has been changed completely they've they've almost tried to um uh wash it out in places to make it look like a more modern show and if you if you compare the brightness or lack of brightness on some of the scenes to the original which at times were very very bright and you know and it's supposed to be you know it's set in california it's yeah. there's an element to it that is meant to be sunny and bright and youthful and it's almost as if they've washed some of that away in in the way that they've remastered it where they've they've made it look more like you know a a more contemporary show where everything has 
blue filters over yeah. everything left, right and centre. They've also cut it, strangely, the picture aspect oh, yeah. um, in order to make it appear widescreen when it's not supposed to be. And there's a there's a couple of really disastrous moments where I think it's uh, towards the end of season three, there's a, a, a fight between Buffy and Faith and they've they've obviously gone back to the original footage and and they've done something to try and make it widescreen and you can see off the edge of the screen part of the edge of the set and you just think how did (laughs) how did this happen how how did nobody notice this and how did this end up being you know the the remastered edition that they released it i can't i can't get on with it at all because to me it doesn't look like buffy anymore in some respects it's kind of heartbreaking um yeah i think with the x-files the first few seasons were shot in the 4-3 aspect ratio and then these blu-rays and the hd you know when, when you stream them on amazon or wherever um they've reformatted them for widescreen but it works much better than what you've just described with buffy I, I think what they said is that even at the time they were protecting the widescreen making sure that the edges of the frame weren't um, populated by you know stage hands or, or whatever <laughs> but that reminds me of um that's what another rewatch i've been doing recently is of my son we just recently signed up to Disney Plus. Now I'm not a big Disney fan, but this whole lockdown thing and having a four year old daughter running around, it kind of seemed like a decent idea. Now um, they've got The Simpsons on there, and we've been watching. My son and I we've been watching The Simpsons from the beginning, and they've re- they've kind of stretched that out for widescreen. So again, it should be the four three aspect ratio. But the thing with The Simpsons is that that was a series that's so densely packed with kind of sight gags and things that actually removing some of the original image to make it look like a widescreen series when it shouldn't be it means you're actually missing out on some some great gags you know and it just seems like it seems i don't know if i'm too much of a purist about this or whether it's even worth getting upset about at a time like this but it seems <laughs> kind of seems like vandalism to me you know like cultural vandalism you wouldn't cut the edges off the mona lisa i don't think would you so why would you do it to lisa simpson yeah, <laughs> yeah i mean i mean you know in terms of the simpsons like that i mean have you have you started Thinking about other shows that you're that you want to rewatch that may be sort of suitable for you know your kids, for example, because you've got to keep them entertained as well as we're about to move into the summer and people aren't allowed to go out outside as much and things like that. Are there other shows that you would that, that you've already got in mind uh, that you might want to introduce to your kids? Um, well, I've actually, I've been watching when time allows. I've been watching some of the old 1960s Batman series with my daughter, um, which I'm, <laughs> I'm quite a big fan of. And it's really interesting because the in- the thing with Batman is that on the one hand, it's this kind of satire up to a point, And the- on the other, you can look at it as kind of a, you know, just a pulpy superhero drama. And my daughter takes it incredibly seriously. You know, she finds, you know, it had this cliffhanger format where I think it was broadcast twice a week originally in America, Batman. So Tuesday night, on Tuesday night's episode, Batman and Robin would end up in a death trap, you know, and you have to tune back in on Wednesday to see how they get out of it. And there was one episode, I think it was with, um, it was with, the, I think the Riddler had suspended Batman and Robin above a cauldron of boiling candle wax. And my, you know, the old thing, when I was a kid, it was watching old Doctor Who episodes would make me hide behind the sofa. And it was just like that for my daughter, you know, so that's one series that's been helping us through this time. I haven't really been planning any others. I suppose this Simpsons rewatch with my son. I mean, there's like 31 series, isn't there? So it's going to take a while. If we're locked down and we, if we run out of Simpsons episodes, we've been locked down for a long time. Um, I've got a few, I'm one of those people who really cherishes having like physical objects, you know, stuff I can hold in my hand. 
So I've always preferred DVDs and Blu-rays to being able to stream stuff, which drives my partner insane, I've got to say, because the shelves we've got are kind of bulging. But I've got a few box sets I've acquired that I just haven't got through yet. So um, I've got Frasier that I need to go through. I've got things like Mad Men, which I've seen before, but haven't been through the box set. So yeah, I've got a few things like that. I think even being locked down, sort of, it's like, where you know, in theory, I should have a lot of time for stuff like this, but... You know, it's it's unlikely to happen to get through everything, I think. But yeah, I've got a few to be contending with, I think. So to change tack onto the Movie Palace yep. podcast, um, I know it's been on a sort of mini hiatus for the last couple of months, mm-hmm. um, but has the lockdown brought the sort of time and energy to start looking back into it again? Yeah, so what happened, so this is a podcast all about sort of classic, well, it started off being exclusively about classic Hollywood cinema. It's kind of broadened a little bit. We've done some British film and um, might do some European film this year. Um, I've done about 50 episodes up to January this year, and I was just particularly busy with work commitments. So, yeah, it was on a bit of a hiatus. I think I would have been recording again um, about this at about this point if the pandemic hadn't happened. And then when when we started to get locked down, I was thinking, okay, maybe this will be much further down the line when I'm able to get back to this. But, you know, as things have turned out, yeah, I'm going to try and get it back up and running again quite soon. Um, so upcoming episodes, we'll be looking at things like Some Like It Hot. I think we're going to look at the Scorsese film, The Aviator. It's obviously much more recent, but it has the old Hollywood uh, connection. Uh, White Heat, the James Cagney gangster film. Um, so, yeah, you're right. I think it is being... Being, you know, housebound means I've got, you know, um, on, on my average week, I spend quite a lot of time commuting to work and all of a sudden I've got a bit of free time that, that's kind of freed up. So hoping to get that back up and running by the end of this month, by the end of April, if I can. Yeah, the nice thing about about a series like the Movie Palace podcast is that obviously people may have already watched the films and then they can listen to an episode about it. But actually it might be an interesting time where, they might decide to look at what you've got episodes about and then go and seek out those films in particular. Have you noticed that there's, you know, that people are doing these things where they're actually going back and, and doing rewatches aligned to aligned to podcasts as well? Uh, I don't know. I, I do notice that there are certain episodes that always seem to kind of tick up on the download figures. And you're right, it's a very different podcast in that respect to something like the X-Cast, where we go through it kind of lin- in a linear fashion you know, episode by episode, whereas the movie palace has been all over the place, really. We just, we, we talk about whatever, basically whatever I or whoever I'm talking with fancy talking about at that particular time. So yeah, there are some episodes where, you know, things like one of the very early episodes I did was the Philadelphia story. And um just for some reason that, that episode always seems to be one that attracts a lot of downloads, you know, so I don't, I don't know how people really do their rewatches with, um, when it comes to classic Hollywood, I'm not quite. I'm not sure actually. That's that's a very interesting question. I'm not as attuned to the group dynamics. I think of that sort of um, fandom, perhaps. I don't know. Are, are there any particular streaming services or TV channels that are especially good for finding some of these classic movies? Yeah. So in the UK, I think the Talking Pictures um, channel, which I think a lot of people don't know about, but that's a particularly good one for. Um, old British cinema, old Hollywood cinema. I definitely recommend that. I think that's available through things like Sky and I don't know about Freeview. I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know if you guys know about Talking Pictures necessarily. I think it is. I think it is on Freeview. Is it? 
Yeah, yeah, I think it is. It's definitely on Virgin Media. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so that that's yeah. a good place to start. I, I don't think I think that's a standard definition channel. So I think if people want, you know, um, HD quality, it's it's not going to give you that, unfortunately. But what it is going to give you is lots of films that you're not going to find anywhere else. I think TCM is reasonably good. I think that in this country, TCM doesn't have as expansive a catalogue as the American uh, Turner Classic Movies. That's the sense I get. Um, because it seems like in this country, TCM shows like, I think they seem to show Goodfellas like four times a month and uh, <laughs> Unforgiven. And when I speak to my friends from America, that they talk very differently about TCM. But still, um, if you haven't seen a lot of these films, that's a good place to go. The streaming services... Um, well, my favourite streaming service for film, and it it's not exclusively devoted to classic film, but it does have films of that era uh, fairly often, is the Mubi um, streaming service, M-U-B-I. Um, again, I think not, not, not enough people know about it. The sort of gimmick with Mubi is that they only have 30 films streaming at any one time, so it's almost like a conveyor belt. If a film... Jo- if um, from day one, when the film goes onto the streaming service, you have 30 days before it gets to the other end and falls off. But in terms of classic Hollywood stuff, I've been watching stuff on there recently, well, in the last couple of months. Uh, things like Pillow Talk with Doris Day, Rock Hudson, Rom-Com was on there. Um, I can't. I just watched the... There was a Charlie Chaplin film, A Countess from Hong Kong, Hong Kong with Marlon Brando and Sophia Loren, which has just fallen off their service, for instance. Um, so it's quite good for that. I mean, it's more broadly... It's um, it kind of majors in, I guess, independent cinema, art house cinema. It has very rare forays into more contemporary kind of mainstream stuff. But it's one of the better film streaming services overall, I would say. So that that's one I would recommend. So as a final question, uh, we'd like to ask you, what would go into your homebrew to get you through the lockdown? Okay, so... Well, I think from what I've said, I'm going to have to say a, a box set of the X-Files, aren't I, on Blu-ray? That's going to have to be one. Um, I don't know. I don't want to get too sentimental, but those of us who are fortunate, I think, to be able to spend time with you know people we love at a time like this, I don't know if that's something you can put in a homebrew, but um, my family, I don't know if that, if that fits the question. Um, this is a really tough one. I don't know. I'm going to have to say a good book. So I think... When I um when my daughter was born, I took some time off work to look after her, and I said to myself, right, I'm going to spend this time wisely. I'm going to go through the entire back catalogue of Shakespeare. And it just didn't happen at that point. So I'm going to put it in my homebrew as an aspiration, I think. I need, I need to acquaint myself with the work of the Bard. So, I don't know, a copy of the complete Shakespeare, I think. Uh, is that acceptable? <laughs> that sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, and I think that's enough to be getting on with. So yeah, that, that's what I'll put in there. So thank you, Carl, for joining us. It's been fantastic to talk to you all about your work on the X-Cast and also uh, what you have done before with the Movie Palace. And it's exciting to hear that it's going to be coming back quite soon, uh, talking more classic Hollywood cinema. Yeah, thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. And um, take care and stay safe. I think that's the kind of, <laughs> that's what everybody's saying at the moment. So yeah, thank you. And where can people uh, find, you know, find you on social media, etc.? Uh, okay, so at CKJ Sweeney on Twitter. And the Movie Palace account uh, specifically is at Movie Palace Pod. Excellent. Thank you so much, Carl, for joining us. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks very much, guys. Appreciate it.
So once again, we'd like to thank Carl for joining us and telling us about all of his podcasting adventures on the Xcast and the Movie Palace pod as well. We hope that maybe you've been intrigued enough about Carl's discussion of the X-Files to maybe join in the X-Cast quarantine event, which is ongoing. Or maybe it's actually worth looking beyond Netflix into the world of other streaming services that may have some exciting classic films for you to find out about as well. Yes, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter at TFCAA on Facebook, Time for Cakes and Ale, or on our website, timeforcakesandale.com. But until next time, from both of us, be seeing you. you.